Back in October, our church began a series of conversations together as a church, and our goal was to discover the type of church we wanted to be going into the future. And so we called it Building a Common Vision. And so we said, you know, it's time to reevaluate our mission statement, our vision statement, who we are as a church, who we want to be as a church, where we're headed for the next 10 years or so. And so we had these conversations, and we had three meetings, and they were about two to three hours each. And we talked and we debated about what is most important to Crossroads and what are the things that we want to define us moving forward as a church. And very quickly in our first meeting, people started saying, we want to be a Christ-centered church. We want to be a Christ-centered church or we want to be a gospel-centered church or we want to be a church that's motivated by the love of Jesus. There was all this different language, but it was around this idea of we want Christ, Jesus, to be the motivating factor of all we say, all we do in our church. And it quickly sparked up a secondary debate within our church in these meetings where we were going, do we need to have that in our mission statement though? Do we need to say that we're Christ-centered in our values, in our mission statement? Because aren't we Crossroads Christian Church? After all, it's in the name. Is this redundant? But as the conversation went on, we all kind of, many people spoke up and we all sort of came into agreement that just because the name Christian is in the name of our church, that does not guarantee that we will always be a Christ-centered church. Because we all know examples of churches, rather some that maybe have wounded you in your life or maybe just churches you've watched, uh, perhaps in this neighborhood or around this city, that claim the name of Jesus, but they fail to show the grace of Jesus to others. Or they claim the name of Jesus, but they teach doctrines and theologies and gospels that are foreign to what Jesus himself taught. And so there are many churches that claim the name of Jesus, but have left behind the grace and the teachings of Jesus somewhere along the way. And we said as a church, we said we don't want to be like that. We want to codify into our mission statement as well as our name that the purpose of our church is to keep Jesus central in everything we do. And so as we crafted this little mission statement, one of the lines is that we are a church that exists to know Christ through the scriptures. And then the tagline on the explanation under that is that we are a church that will ensure that we know, believe, and apply what Jesus taught and what he accomplished. And so as we are beginning a mission or vision series that we're going to do throughout the summer, we have to ask, who is Jesus? If our mission is to be a Christ-centered church, we have to ask, who is Jesus and what does that mean for us as a church? And the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, this is where we're going to be today. The Apostle Paul tells us what Jesus is like. He says, He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things... How many things? All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, in what things? Everything, he might be preeminent. 
For in him all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. And the first thing I want us to see from this passage that we've got to understand moving forward as a church, if we're going to be Christ-centered, we need to understand this. The first thing is that Jesus Christ is God-made visible. Paul says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. A.W. Tozer says that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important defining factor in our lives. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, A.W. Tozer says. And he goes on to say, and he says that your spiritual maturity will never rise above your understanding of who God is. Spiritual maturity comes with knowing God. And so the question then is, well, what is God like? See, isn't that the question that everybody wants to answer? Every theology book, every sermon, every song that we sing, it's an attempt to explain what God is like. Hollywood tries to explain what God is like. Professors try to explain what God is like. Your neighbor down the street would probably, if you asked, he would love to explain to you what God is like. See, we all have these floating ideas in our minds, in in our heads about what God is like. And in the age of information that we live in, these ideas are spread rapidly. There's Netflix specials on what God is like. There's blog posts on what God is like. There's Facebook memes that are not based in any sort of reality at all that are shared on what God is like. And there's millions and millions and millions of opinions flying around around our heads about what God is like. And with all of those opinions, with all of those viewpoints flying around, it's easy to plead ignorance and say, you know, I just don't know. I don't know what God is like. And Paul here says, no, we know exactly what God is like. We look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the Apostle Paul says. The author of Hebrews says that he is the exact representation of God. Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. That's not a statement about Jesus having been created. That's a statement about his status. See, in Hebrew and language, in Hebrew language and in Hebrew culture, firstborn denotes status. See, the firstborn received all of the inheritance of the father and therefore was equal with the father in status. And so when Paul says he's the firstborn of all creation, he says Jesus is equal with the father. Jesus is one with the father. So what does that mean? Image of the invisible, firstborn of creation. It means that if you want to know the heart of God, you look to Jesus. And if you want to know what God cares about, you look in in the Gospels and you see what Jesus cares about. If you want to know what God is doing in the world, you read the New Testament, you read the Scriptures and see what Jesus is doing in the world. If you want to know the things that God hates and you want to know the things that God loves, you look to the life of Jesus. And if we want to be a Christ-centered church, we have to constantly look to Jesus so that we can honor God. And so what are some things that we can see about God through the life of Jesus? These are some things that we need to consider as a church. First, one of the the first thing we see about, this is just kind of looking at Jesus' life. What are some things we notice about God? The first thing we notice is that Jesus is deeply concerned with and compassionate toward those on the margins. You look at the woman on the well, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, 
a demoniac in Mark chapter 5 who was um, being plagued by thousands of demons. Jesus came and he sat with the guy. He healed the guy. The sick, the homeless, the the addicted, the abused. These are the people that Jesus spent time with. In a culture where people thought that if somebody who was unclean touched you, you would become unclean, Jesus was giving prostitutes hugs. Jesus was giving drunkards the time of day to sit at the table with them. Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners and addicts and drunkards and gluttons. And I don't want you to miss this because what this tells us is is no matter what you're bringing into this room today, no matter what your past is or even what your present is, Jesus is willing to identify himself with you so that you can identify yourself with him. See, Jesus was called a drunkard and a glutton by all the religious leaders. But it was, he, he was willing to be called those names so that he could get close to those who were gluttons and drunkards so that he could know them and lead them into the fullness of life. He was willing to be called a drunkard and a glutton so that you and I could be called sons and daughters of God. And so whatever your story, whether you're unloved or whether you feel cast out or marginalized or broken, God is for you. And he's willing to press into your pain and your suffering with you so that you can come out with a new identity and a new future. He's not afraid to be seen with you. He knows the innermost thoughts in your heart. Some of those of you who never really sinned visibly, you've always kind of followed the path. God knows what's in your mind. The things that you do not want anybody to know. He knows those and he still loves you and he still chooses you and he still wants to know you. And so you can rest assured knowing that your Father in heaven loves you because Jesus shows us that he loves the sick, he loves the poor, and he loves the outcasts. And that also ought to motivate us as a church. The way we serve the Guild for Exceptional Children, the way we serve the homeless, the way we serve those within our congregation who don't have as much as others of us. We're a community, we ought to be a community that is welcoming to all people Whatever their background, whatever stripe, whatever, whatever they have bringing into this place, we're a church that ought to be Christ-centered in the way that we love, in the way that we care, in the way that we welcome and embrace everyone. Second thing we see about God through the life of Jesus is that he's making all things new. See, the life of Jesus shows us that God is making all things new. In the Lord of the Rings, Sam Ganji asked Gandalf, he says, is everything sad coming untrue? And isn't that the question that we all want answered? Are the sad things in this world ever going to come untrue? Is the depression that seems to constantly plague me, is that ever going to be lifted from my heart? Is my son or my daughter who's sick ever going to be healed? Is my mom ever going to reconcile with me? Is my father ever going to give me the affirmation that I want and that I need? Is sickness ever going to go away? Is loneliness ever going to go away? Is poverty and injustice and racism and all of these things, are they ever going to come untrue? And Jesus says, yes, there's a kingdom coming where there will be no sad things. Every tear will be wiped away from our eyes and every sad thing will become untrue. 
And he shows us that he desires and is able to renew and restore all things. See, when Jesus was healing the sick and when he was giving sight to the blind and was giving rest to the weary and causing the crippled to walk and calming storms and putting people's ears that had been chopped off back on, that happened. That's one of my favorite stories. Peter chops a guy's ear off and Jesus is like, come on, Peter, are you kidding me? And he picks the guy's ear up and puts it back. It's so cool. Jesus, when he does these things, these aren't magic tricks to show off. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is showing us when he does, performs these miracles and these healings, he's showing us what, what the future of the world, where it's headed. Everything that has been broken and marred and affected by the sinful and broken world will one day, by the work of Jesus, be reshaped into the way that it was always intended to be. See, there was this one time where Jesus was in Decapolis where he had also healed a demoniac, but a year or so later he comes back and he heals a blind man. And the response of the crowd tells us everything we need to know about Jesus. Mark chapter 7, verse 37, it says, The people were astonished beyond measure, meaning they were blown away. And they said, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Revelation 21, Jesus himself says, Behold, I am making all things new. See, our God came to renew and restore all of creation that has been broken and marred because of sin, including us. Through Christ, God is reconciling us to himself, taking our sin away and pointing us toward a future and preparing a home for us in a place called heaven, called the kingdom of God, where there will be no more crying, there will be no more pain, there will be no more sickness, there will only be joy and worship. He is conforming you into the image of himself and he's going to make disabilities and miscarriages and sickness and cancer and depression and loneliness and death disappear in the age to come. And that's what we look forward to in Christ. Another thing we know about God through Jesus is that he hates dead religion. Jesus reserved his harshest critiques for those who practiced religion separated from the love and the mercy and the grace of God. He called the scribes and the Pharisees, who were basically like the religious leaders of the day, he called them whitewashed tombs. He said, look, you're clean on the outside, but you're filthy and smelly on the inside. I saw a YouTube video one time where a guy played a prank on some people where he took an onion and put like caramel apple stuff over it and like gave it to people. And Jesus is like, that's what's up with you religious hypocrites. He's like, you look so delicious and you look so like you got it all together on the outside. But when you you bite into it, you're just a nasty onion. You're a whitewashed tomb. You look great on the outside, but on the inside, there's a rotting corpse. See, Jesus ravaged the temple when he saw that people were using religion to gain profit and power. God's desire is not for us to look the part on the outside, but have no affections for him within our hearts. See, God wants your affection. He doesn't want your performance. He doesn't want your fake smile. He wants your heart. And he wants your brokenness. He wants you to give it to him. Cast all your cares upon him. And he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and give you peace. He calls himself the Prince of Peace, the Wonderful Counselor. See, Jesus wants to know you. He doesn't want to be used by you. See, religious hypocrites, they use God. 
They come to church, they tithe, they do their thing, they fast, they do whatever. And then when something doesn't go their way, they shake their fists at God and say, God, you owe me, I've done all this stuff for you. They never loved God. They were simply using God, trying to get him into their debt. But Jesus says, I hate dead religion. I want you to know me. I want you to worship me. And here's what this means for our church. This means that we've got to pull off the veneer of religious happiness and fake joy. We've got to come in and we've got to be honest about who we are, what we're struggling with, and how our week has been. How's your week been? Oh, it's been great. God is just so good. How's your week been? It's been hard. My son, my daughter, they've been driving me crazy. They, my son is battling these sicknesses, or my wife is dealing with this, or my mom is dealing with this. How's your week been? It's been hard. Can you pray for me? That's the kind of heart that Jesus wants when you walk into the church. Not how you doing. Oh, great, I was singing that song. I was singing all day. Humming. Maybe that's you. And that's good. And on those weeks where that's true about you, let us know. But on the weeks where it's hard, don't bring in the fake hypocrisy stuff. Bring in who you are and let God redeem you and restore you. And what is God like? God is like Jesus because Jesus is God. God cares for the broken. God is redeeming. He's restoring and renewing all things. He's making sad things come untrue. And he is a personal God who wants to be known by his people, not used by us. Now, let's see what else Paul says about Jesus. He says that Jesus is the creator See, people say, well, I thought God, the Father, was the creator. No. Listen to what Paul says. He says, for by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. You know, in the scriptures in Genesis 1, it says, God says before he creates, the, or before he creates man, he says, let us create man in, his own, in our own image. And you're like, well, who's us? How is a singular person speaking in the plural? Because he's speaking of the Trinity. Jesus was there when this world was created. In fact, and I don't want to confuse you or blow your minds or anything, but the Hebrew word, the first words in the Bible, in the beginning, the Hebrew word is the word bereshit, which means when you translate it literally, and I'm not kidding you, it means by means of the firstborn. By means of the firstborn, he created the heavens and the earth. Jesus was there in the very beginning. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. And what Paul is trying to say here is that all things go through Jesus. From the beginning, Jesus has existed. He was never created. Rather, he created all things. And the purpose of all things is to point back toward him. I love Paul's use of prepositions in this passage right here. I don't know if you remember when you were in high school or middle school or whatever, when you learned prepositions, you remember how they let you kind of, they taught you how to know what a preposition is? Like a log, right? No? It's like, I don't, I don't know what a prep, what's a preposition? <laughs> My teacher. Um, um, and I went to public school and I know this. I don't know where you guys went to school. My teacher would say the way you know what a preposition is, is if you could take like a log or a box, and if you could do something to the box, um, if, you could, if you could go, if there's, what is going on? This is a great analogy. On a box, over a box, around a box, through a box, 
in a box. That's a preposition. Make sense? I'll test you late next week. Paul essentially shows that one of the best ways to understand prepositions is to make Jesus the box or the log. All things were created by him. All things were created for him. All things were created through him. He is over all things. In him, all things hold together. He is before all things. Pick any preposition. And Paul shows that in relationship to Christ, all things were created for, in, and they should point to Jesus. This means that everything that is created was made for the glory of Jesus. You were created to make much of Jesus. Your children were created to make much of Jesus. Not make much of you. Your children were created to make much of Jesus. Your life was created to make much of Jesus. Every opportunity you've been given in this life was given to you to make much of Jesus. Every animal, every plant was created to display the glory of Jesus in this world. The food that you're going to eat in an hour was not merely made for your consumption. The food that God made, He put those flavors together and those smells together to create in you an awe of the one who created it. When you eat an incredible chicken souvlaki pita from something Greek, it ought to drive you to worship. When you eat, amen, and amen, when you eat a falafel sandwich from Hazar, You ought to pause and go, oh, these fresh vegetables and these deep fried chickpeas. Isn't that what it is? That is to give glory to the God who created those things and to give glory to God who gave us the minds to put those ingredients together. Now, if you go to McDonald's, that is of Satan, okay? (laughs) I'm joking. I eat McDonald's all the time. It's cheap, yeah. Abraham Kuyper, former prime minister of the Netherlands, he said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Jesus Christ, who is sovereign over all things, does not cry, that's mine. Every square inch of this planet was created by Jesus and for Jesus. Everything you do, Paul says whether you eat or drink, you do it for the glory of God. There's a way to eat. There's a way to drink. There's a way to sing in your car. There's a way to commute. There is a way to be a carpenter. And there's a way to be an accountant and a developer that points to Jesus. There's a way to walk the streets of this city that points to Jesus. There's a way to be a neighbor that points to Jesus. I'm getting way ahead of myself in my sermon. And what Paul is trying to say here is that there's not one speck of dust on this earth that was not created by God and was created to give glory back to God. Now because of sin, we give glory to other things. And we take things that God created for good and we distort them. Things that were created for good, things like wine, for gladness of the heart, we distorted them into drunkenness. Things that were created for good, good food, we distorted them into gluttony and overeating And using, we worship food rather than the creator of the food. See, because of sin, we distort the good things that God has made when we don't give weight to that which is is most weighty. 
But we must know that we were created for a purpose. The first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is simply just a document that teaches theology, is ask the question, what is the chief end of man? What's the chief end? What's our purpose in life? And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. All things were created by him, they are from him, they are through him, and they ought to be to him. Another thing we see about Jesus is that Jesus is preeminent. 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This word preeminent, it simply means that in all things, Jesus would be supreme, the weightiest of all things in your life. And Paul's prayer is that we would give weight to that which is most weighty, that Jesus would take the supreme position in our lives, that in all aspects of our life, that he would be the motivating factor for all we do, how we do it, and why we do it. And there are two areas that I want us to look at today very briefly, and then I'm going to reserve Jesus's pre... We're going to look at Jesus's preeminence in the church and Jesus's preeminence in the workplace, and I'm going to save Jesus's preeminence in the family for next week. It's Mother's Day. Jesus's preeminence in the church. Jesus's supremacy over all things begins with the church. He's the head of the church. See, we have a tendency in American Christianity to make our churches about all, all sorts of things. And we make other things preeminent in the church rather than Jesus himself. Many churches will make their music style the most preeminent thing about them. Many churches will make their mission projects the most preeminent thing about them. They'll talk about, many churches will make the way they dress the most preeminent thing about them. Or how good the preacher is. I took a seminar or like a class one time in church leadership. And the teacher, he was talking about the value of church mission statements and websites and branding. And I was like, oh gosh, here we go, branding in the church. And he, but what he said was actually amazing. He said, what you communicate to your community is essential about, who, about communicating who you are as a church. And he said, many churches communicate the wrong thing. They communicate that they're about all sorts of other things other than Jesus. Come to our church. We're a church like you've never experienced, they'll say. And you're like, well, is the church about being novel? Or is that church about Jesus? Or many churches will say, we have the best kids ministry. And I think we do, okay? Um, but is the church about kids ministry? No, the church is about Jesus. And that's how we ought to advertise ourselves. And this teacher, he said, and I love this. He said, when the lead pastor's face is your logo, you have a problem. <laughs> and we all, we've all seen this, Right? We've all seen the church that out front or the, on the highway or on the BQE, there's a billboard and the pastor's face is on it. And it's like, I'm going to make you a promise right now, okay? That if Crossroads ever has a billboard, it will not have my face on it. I promise you that. I will never be the logo of this church. Because who's preeminent in the church? Is the pastor preeminent? Is the pastor the first thing that ought to be on the website? Is the pastor the first thing, a big mural of the pastor, the first thing you should see when you walk through the doors? No. What's preeminent in the church? Jesus and his mission. Not me and my mission or you and your mission. See, our preferences are not what is preeminent in the church. Jesus is. And that means that many of us, all of us in this room, have preferences for what we think church is going to be like. And guess what? Crossroads is never going to match all of your preferences. We're all going to have to sacrifice some of our preferences for this church to be what God has called it to be. I used to be a pastor of uh, college-age students in a traditional Baptist church. 
And as our ministry grew, hundreds of college students started attending this traditional Baptist church. And it kind of freaked out some of the older, more traditional people in our congregation because these college kids like started just, they were showing up late and they had tattoos and they wore jeans in church and they had backwards hats on. And it was, our church was mostly white for a while. And when we started having all these college students from other races and nationalities, it was just a big change for a lot of our people. And then on Monday nights, we had our college ministry gathering, and we would change up the sanctuary, put banners up, and make it real cool for college kids, and we would pump loud music. The students would leave trash on the floor. They'd spill their Starbucks everywhere. And some of the people were annoyed by all the changes. They were annoyed by, that we were destroying the sanctuary, that people were wearing backwards hats in church and ended up getting sunburns like this on their face. And they, were, they didn't like that kids were showing up late with tattoos everywhere. But one Monday night, we had one of our college services, and a couple of older men from the church showed up, and the music was loud, and the kids were just raising their hands in worship, just crying out to God. And I think that night, we baptized six, seven people. And we had internet, I remember that night, we sang the song, How Great Is Our God, and we had, I think, 10, 15 international students come up and sing the chorus in their language. And this older gentleman came up to me after the service and he said, son, I don't really like all the stuff that you're doing. (laughs) He said, your kids mess up the sanctuary. They wear hats in church and I don't like it. He said, but if all these changes mean more students are getting baptized and our church is reaching people of all nations, he said that I'm all in. I don't like the way it's being done. I don't like the volume of it. But if this is what the result is, I'm all in. And he was on our security team every Monday night. He would patrol the parking lots to make sure it was safe for our college students to worship. He hated our music, but he listened to it every Monday night. So he hated the music, but he loved seeing college students respond to it. See, he laid his preferences down for the sake of Jesus' preeminence in the church. And I want Jesus to be preeminent in our church, not my preferences or your preferences. Jesus ought to be preeminent in the church, but he also, and I'll hurry here, He ought to be preeminent in your workplace. I recently heard an influential Christian leader who was asked, he said, what's the church need to do if we want to reach people into the 21st century? And one of the answers that this gentleman gave, he said, the church has to demonstrate to the world that their Christianity matters on Monday through Saturday just as much as as it does on on Sunday. Their their, their, Their Christianity matters just as much on Monday through Saturday as it does on Sunday. And then he went on to sort of lament the fact that our church, we've, in the church culture, we've developed this sacred-secular divide, which says that church things are sacred. This is where I worship God, and what I do for a living, and what missionaries do for a living, is sacred. I have a sacred task, people often say. I'm a man of the cloth, or whatever. We say church is sacred, worship is sacred, that's where we worship, but work, that's neutral. That's just where I get paid. But if we want our church to have any influence in this century, we must understand that Jesus is preeminent in all things, even your workplace. And the way that you work is an act of worship. And so when you go to work, you have to ask the question, if Jesus were me, how would he do my job? What would Jesus look like if he worked in this company? And we have to go back a little bit because a lot of people talk about work. They have this bad theology where they say, oh, work is a necessary evil. It's part of the curse. 
Before sin came, Adam was just hanging out in the garden, chilling, like in a hammock all the time. He was on vacation, like perpetual vacation. That's not true. Work was created before sin came into the world. The first thing that God told Adam was he gave him a command. Name the animals, work and cultivate the land. Be a farmer and be a zookeeper. That was his job. Name the animals and till the land. Take the raw materials of the earth and create something. And when sin came, it affected work. Now our work that was once created good, it's now hard. We sweat. And now we have to work in order to live. And work is now sometimes affected by greed and it's distorted by all these things. Sin has affected our work, but work is still, like everything, a good creation and a good gift from God. And as Christians, we have to show people what redeemed work looks like. See, if we believe God is renewing and restoring all things, we ought to live like this. You say, well, my work is insignificant. I'm just a fill-in-the-blank, a plumber, garbage man, whatever. You pick these jobs or whatever. Or I'm just an accountant, or I'm just a this or that. Tim Keller says, there is no menial work. Jesus came not as a philosopher, not as a general. He came as a carpenter. The Bible itself says that all work matters to God. Do you guys know what Walmart is? We don't have them in the city, but those of us who grew up outside the city, we all know about Walmart. Low prices, they destroy communities, but the prices are so low that it's so tempting. But I heard a story not long ago about an old man who was a greeter at Walmart. Walmart has greeters placed at the, when you walk in their stores. And the greeters just stand, has their little padded mat that they stand on, and they just say hello to people as they come in. And there was this one greeter at this one particular Walmart, and he was just so friendly. And people would talk about it. They're like, oh, they, people would go park on that side of the store so that they could go through that entrance just to be greeted by this older gentleman. And, they, and I mean, it was like the town talked about just what a great and just incredible warm welcome this guy gave people as they walked in to Walmart. And one pastor one day walked up and he said, you know, I've come to this Walmart so many times and I've seen you just with joy, with a smile on your face, treat everybody with such dignity. And he said, I have to know, are you a follower of Jesus? And that Walmart greeter said, yes, yes, I am. And the pastor looked at him and said, sir, you have redeemed this 40 foot by 40 foot square, this 40 foot by 40 foot space here in front of the store. See, whatever your job is, you can work your job in a way that shows that Christ is preeminent. So I would encourage you to do this exercise. Whatever you do, do it in Jesus' name. And you'll find that some of the practices in your life do not resonate resonate with Jesus as being preeminent. In Jesus' name, I'll treat my customers poorly. Doesn't work. In Jesus' name... I'm going to have a bad attitude. Or in Jesus' name, I'm going to show up late. Or in Jesus' name, I'm going to dishonor my boss. In Jesus' name, I'm going to treat my employees poorly. In Jesus' name, I'm going to cheat on my timesheet. In Jesus' name, I'm going to charge an exorbitant price for this product. In Jesus' name, I will manipulate and undercut my peers to get ahead. You can't do that. Or you can say, in Jesus' name, I'm going to honor my customers this way. In Jesus' name, I'm going to honor my boss even when he or she doesn't honor me. Just like Christ, who honored us even when we didn't honor him. In Jesus' name, I'm going to make this decision even if, this, if it does this to my bottom line. Or in Jesus' name, I'm going to clock out 
early today or on time today. I'm not going to work crazy hours and neglect my family. In Jesus' name, I'm going to sacrifice the promotion so that I can get home in time to put my kids to bed. In Jesus' name, I'm going to treat my coworkers with dignity and respect and care for them rather than I'm going to manipulate and cheat and compete against them. In Jesus' name, I'm going to do my work this way. And the way you do your work, the ethics that you operate under, the way you love and treat your coworkers shows that you can be a counter-cultural Christian and show the love of Jesus in this city. We live in a city where people are constantly trying to rip us down and take our spot. And you can say, you know what? I'm not going to play that game, but rather I'm going to work ethically. I'm going to work honorably. And I'm going to work with grace and mercy and kindness toward my coworkers. The preeminence of Christ in all things. We can stretch this into other areas of our life. Sports, hobbies, whatever. We're going to talk about family next week. But whatever you do, is Christ preeminent? That's the question. Can you do, whatever it is you're doing, can you do it in Jesus' name? Now, why does this matter? Paul is making this statement, and he says something that is offensive to our culture. Why is it, why is it important that we are a Christ-centered church? Because Paul says that Jesus is the only way that people are going to know God. And while there are a lot of opinions floating around about God, the the scriptures say that if you want to experience God, you have to know Christ. And there's a popular opinion that says you can approach God through a myriad of ways. So if you're good and you're sincere at whatever religion you practice, that should be enough. But the problem with other religions is that they're void of Jesus. And Paul says if you want to know God, you have to know Jesus. He's the firstborn from the dead. You see, when Jesus died, he demonstrated that he is the first taste of what is to come, and that is the resurrection. And those who will follow him, place him as preeminent, will experience the resurrection and the newness of life. And we want to be a Christ-centered church, that Jesus is preeminent in all we do, that we love those on the margins, that we, we don't practice a dead religion, but rather we worship Jesus, who is Lord of all, and we preach Christ even when it's not popular and even when it's offensive, but we worship Christ when we come together. Let's pray.